Welcome to StartupRad.io, your podcast and YouTube blog covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Joe from StartupRad.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from Germany. Today I do have a startup founder here who's a German guy but actually started this company in the United States. Uh, when we've been talking before, uh, what came to mind was um, podcasting in the time of Corona um, adapted from a very famous book. But first, I would like to welcome you. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? Good. Th uh, great to be here, Joe. And I'm very excited about uh, yeah talking about uh, what you guys do and what we do. At the beginning, we did have a little um, a little difficulty with the timing because what many people don't know, um, the United States and Europe don't change to daylight savings time at the same moment. So that means there are a few weeks always where there's a, a another time difference here. So keep that in mind if you're conducting business. That said, thank you for making the time on a Saturday and let's get right on. You are from Germany. And I've stalked you a little bit on LinkedIn. Everybody who'd like to reach out to you, go down here in the show notes. There is a link to your LinkedIn profile. If you're looking at this or listening to this on your device, there'll be a link to our blog and there you can f reach out directly to you and people will see you have a master's in economics and how on earth did you end up with a master's in economics in Germany? in a deep tech company working with the human genome in the United States? That's a great question. So yeah, you're totally right. I studied economics in Tübingen University in, in Germany. Um, I think to really understand how I ended up in deep genomics and artificial intelligence and in cancer diagnostics now, um, I think it's important to understand my kind of childhood and background. My Dad was a professor of pharmacology. My mom was a bioscientist. My brother is a doctor and bioengineer. So I kind of grew up in that environment, um, exposed to medicine my whole uh, life, uh, all the way to high school, and was really pushed into medicine to some extent and then rejected it and said, that's too boring. I want to do something new um, and went into economics, um, which I don't regret. But then, You know, after a corporate career, mergers and acquisitions, and then going into finance and quantitative finance, uh, it came all full circle back when I entered kind of the startup space in the United States with, and focused more and more on biotechnology. There was a little random, but maybe in my past just caught up with me. And I really enjoyed taking kind of a technology and innovation perspective that I learned throughout my career to look at that you know, medical space and the biotech space and this tremendous innovation potential um, that is evolving now and in the last 10 years. Um, and then I got just totally sucked into it and applied both the knowledge I had in, in medicine from the early days and my proclivity towards uh, anything that's quantitative um, and machine learning related um, to combine that in, in deep genomics. And that's how I ended up here. I had a lot of thoughts in mind when you've been talking and one of the first things when you told us your family is all into medicine, biology, and you rejected it, what, what have been the first reactions of your family when you told them, oh, well, uh, I kind of got back into medicine? <laughs> 
That is a very good question. My dad was really for me uh, doing medicine. I was always very good in natural sciences in, in high school. And he said, look, you're so good at it. And, you know, you should totally do medicine. And I literally was bored by it because I felt like there's nothing new to learn. I know most of that stuff already. And um, it just wasn't exciting. Um, and yeah, now that it becomes exciting for me again, because there's this tremendous innovation potential that we can unlock. Um, it's interesting how my family reacts. I can't, I probably shouldn't go too deep into it, but it's not always, I mean, now it's more like a reaction. That's like, what the hell, uh, what's happening? Um, so <laughs> now it's more like, oh, you're, you didn't even study medicine and now you're telling us, you know, uh, what new technologies we should use. So, um, it's kind of a, uh, they definitely find it intriguing on one side, but there's definitely like now there's some competitive thing going on, I think. So it's interesting. It's some family dynamics. Um, translate to they've all been wearing a broad smile. That said, you first started out in financial services. What did you do there? Well, my first step um, after university was actually going into, um, I was in, in the advertising and marketing industry first. Uh, so in strategic planning or uh, marketing strategy with large agencies, WPP and Omnicom uh, agencies, um, then went pretty quickly into corporate development, um, mergers and acquisitions, because these big marketing groups have to, back in the days in 2000 you know, four, five, six, they had to react to all kinds of technology changes in the internet space. So uh, old school, large scale advertising networks had to acquire companies in the digital space. And I enjoyed that. And from there, I went more and more into the financial side of things because I was always most intrigued by complex number systems. And um, then became too bored by the corporate life and then switched sides um, and did some startup and venture capital related things in New York. Um, yeah, and then basically developed I2X uh, capital technologies, which is um, back in the days in 2011 was the first quantitative investment framework for seed stage investing. So basically was a tool designed for larger investors, not venture capital funds, but large scale asset managers to find a way to invest broadly into very early stage startups. So we are talking about hundreds of thousands of investments in a systematic way, risk mitigated portfolios where you have a very tight grip on the risk you're actually taking um, to capture the upsides of early stage tech investments, um, kind of pre-series A, ideally. And uh, that was a pretty exciting endeavor and we made some progress. Um, was, um, focused around accelerators like Y Combinator, Techstars, and some others um, that allowed us to do certain things on the risk side. Um, then entered basically this whole space, had great conversations with Eric Ries, for example, before he wrote The Lean Startup, um, and um, AngelList, uh, Naval Ravikant, so, and some other uh, guys. And yeah, and I, this is exposure to early stage startups, you know, it, that kind of triggered my interest in all kinds of verticals, what's actually happening in innovation across all these different industries. And biotech and genomics just caught my eye, especially because maybe because I already had a background in that, but mostly because there was this tremendous potential disruption. It's the largest economic sector um, in America, uh, $4 trillion a year, um, the healthcare sector with very little true innovation going on, with tremendous innovation friction, 
Um, and now, you know, with this undercurrent of extremely disruptive innovation in deep sequencing and artificial intelligence, and it, I just found it too intriguing to see this clash between all this potential and at the at the same time being a sector that is most backwards uh, compared to, you know, software, uh, social media, but also even cars and rockets now. So I think that just caught my attention. And then, you know, some things happened where we figured something very important out in cancer and that spawned Quantine. Many, many questions, but um, the majority of our audience has a background in like startups, technology companies, um, investors and a background in financial services. So we should first like define what we are actually talking about. You talked about the human genome. Can you give a definition of what you mean by that? Because I do believe every scientist you ask out there will give you a different definition of it, right? Um, yes, maybe not a different definition of the human genome, but what exact business and technology and utility you, you generate That was what I had in mind. So, yes. Uh, so I think that's an excellent point because there's a lot of confusion in this field. So what QuantGene developed, what we built here in the last five years, is a very specific new capability. And we call that the deep human genome or unlocking the deep human genome. And the human genome is a bunch of nucleotides, 3.3 billion base pairs, which are these four letters, A, T, C, G, that encode all the proteins in your body. And basically it's like the, the code to life because that's how the body can build itself. Um, but also uh, where all, um, or where, where diseases like cancer are being encoded into. And there's a lot of talk about hereditary testing. So that means Uh, 23andMe, Ancestry, and a lot of other hereditary tests, what they do is they take some body cells, like you spit in a tube, or they take blood, and um, you can basically investigate how your specific genome looks like. And so how this technically works is there's something called sequencing, where you can look at sequences of these nucleotides. You can also look at the entire coding regions or the entire genome. Um, And technically, how these technologies work is they, you know, take 10 or 30 copies of your genome and then read them. So 30 times your genome, and then they create the average for each read, right? So at one specific location, you have T, 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 G, T, 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 right? And then they say, in average, it's a T. And this way, they basically construct your genome. Um, what we developed is a It's, it's a capability that is, has a different application and is vastly more complex. So our thinking was when you have a blood sample and you have a tumor in your body, like you have early stage cancer and that no one can see and no one can find uh, with current methods. Um, what that cancer does, it, it consists of hundreds of millions of tumor cells, even at early stage, but it's not visible. It's still too small. Um, these cells have a certain turnover, they die at a certain rate. And when a cell dies, it sheds all its contents into the bloodstream or the lymph system. So um, that means the DNA of these cells end up in your blood as cell-free DNA that just swims around in the blood. And what we thought of is a technology that allows us to investigate not just the average of 10 copies, 
but it allows us to take a blood sample and then systematically investigate every single copy of DNA across a certain number of key locations. Now, this capability is tens of thousands of times more complex because if you let's let's assume you have ten thousand copies of DNA in one blood sample, cell-free DNA. If you want to make sure you actually investigate every single copy, it's vastly more complex than saying, "Oh, pick up." 10 or 30 random copies and tell me what the average looks like. And so that that needed, and to give you an idea, like, you know, it, it's, it's probably a few megabyte to do basic sequencing of your genome. What we do generates files of like 200 plus gigabytes per sample um, because we are looking at over 6 billion individual nucleotides. Um, we had to develop new chemistry uh, and we had to develop a vast, uh, software infrastructure to actually make this work. So it's it's an entirely new level of precision medicine. And uh, that's very, you know, cloud-based. We use uh, Amazon servers, Linode, and some others, and uh, needs some a lot of processing, very complex bioinformatics pipelines. But most importantly, it is a it is a potential game changer in medicine because early detection of cancer uh, gets an enormous boost with this technology. It makes the detection uh, single molecule precise. A single molecule of uh, cell-free DNA of a tumor can be detected now. And before you needed millions of proteins or something, protein molecules to actually see a difference. Um, and early detection of cancer is the best, the, by far the best tool we have to save lives today in cancer. So it's very exciting. It's a deep and complex technology stack from chemistry to software to AI, um, all the way to clinical algorithms. What do you, how do you actually introduce that to, into medical practice um, with an enormous upside, but also significant investments because you have to run large trials, you have to buy very expensive machines, you have to build very complex software. Um, so for me, it's just extremely exciting because not too many people even work on this. And with Quantine, we have a unique you know, path to do something big. It's it's definitely uh, difficult, but it's very exciting. From my understanding, genomics is not very easy because it's not like coding. You write here, blue, and the whole screen turns blue. It's more also like an interaction of um, different parts of the genome that actually define stuff, as well as there is some adjustments to the environment, right? Yes, I would say the main difference between biology, um, including genomics, and everything that is classical engineering, so electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and software engineering, is that in genomics, you're operating in an environment of, of deep uh, ignorance in a way, like human ignorance, like we simply... <laughs> I'm not talking about my colleagues, I'm talking about just the, the, the base knowledge that humanity has about what we are doing in biology. So every time you do something in software, for example, it's very likely that you have complete knowledge at least available about everything because it's human made. Someone knows how that stuff works, right? Someone knows the code, someone knows the language, someone knows the chips, someone knows the computers. In mechanical engineering, everything that has been built is fully understood to a very large extent. In biology, you know, whatever you do in deep genomics, you run constantly into these holes, 
Like you, you see, okay, we know that, we know that protein has that effect, but it also has a vast array of other effects that no one understands. That protein looks like that, only that we don't know exactly the tertiary uh, structure. We don't know how it folds and we don't know exactly what it does. Okay, that gene can be mutated, but we have no idea what these mutations do. And so you'd constantly run into millions of new questions where there's simply no answer. And so you have to operate in an environment of extreme uncertainty. And the same is true for the data we generate. Even with Quantsheets technology that's vastly more advanced than conventional sequencing, we still look, you know, if we have 6 uh, billion reads per sample, we still look at, you know, tens of thousands of errors that even we cannot get out of that. So you find a mutation, you still have to decide, well, I found a mutation, but is it a mutation or is it an error? And how do you triangulate that? So it's basically a certain specific form of data science that has to operate into, um, into kind of a surrounded by darkness, right? So you don't know exactly what is true and what is not, but you can um, approximate truth. And so you have to build much more fuzzy logics for this entire thing. Very different from other machine learning problems from, for example, Facebook and Amazon recommendation feeds, a lot of financial data, uh, self-driving cars, all that stuff has very limited uncertainty, right? If you have a stream of likes on Facebook, the, if you have 10,000 likes, the probability that one like is true is extremely high. Because if you have 1,000 likes or 10,000, it's very likely you actually have 10,000 likes. If you find 10,000 mutations, it's basically guaranteed it's not 10,000. You know, it's a little more, it's a little less, and, and so on. So if you have a self-driving car and you feed your neural net, every image you get, the probability that the image represents the actual image is high. Because why not? So uh, whereas with us, like you never know exactly what's true and what's not. And so it's like, how do you build AI systems, pattern recognition systems based on these deep genomics pipelines that account for that and make sure you, you really improve medical practice and precision while operating on data sets that are always a little vague. That sounds to me pretty much like you have to work with a lot of probabilities. If this, then there's a probability of X that Y could happen, something like that. You're exactly right. Like in technical terms, Bayesian networks, for example, are very important in medicine um, because they operate on Bayesian probabilities. Um, and, you know, that's a very nice tool. Uh, but still, you know, if you look at AI talent, people we have to hire, um, you know, most of the AI talent today comes from finance, comes from Google or self-driving cars, image recognition, and they are pretty much uh, newborns when it comes to genomics, right? They come in, or worse than newborns, they're newborns who think they already know something. Um, sometimes it's better to just have a newborn. So, um, so we at this frontier where everyone has to really learn and redefine how these systems work. Because it's not that the medical, uh, that people with deep medical or biological experience can solve the problem because they have no clue what AI even is. So you have the choice, do you take people who have no clue what AI is, or do you take AI people who haven't been exposed to this kind of fuzzy data? There are some people like in between, for example, people who work a lot with physical uh, sensors, like in, in rocketry. Um, I just talked to, we are in LA, so we know a lot of SpaceX. Um, talent and they work on 
sometimes you build in cheaper sensors and more of them rather than expensive sensors and only one. For the engines, for example, GPS sensors or other kind of sensors that tell the, the system where the rudder or whatever is located right now. And there's a lot of fuzziness in these physical signals. It says, okay, now we are here or we are, we are now positioned here, but it's only roughly true. Might be slightly untrue. So, and these guys are also so very different space, but they're also used to uncertainty. I was just wondering, how do you actually find the truth? Meaning in, if you start a startup, you have a hypothesis, people want to buy uh whatever dy uh, dynamite necklaces for the girlfriends and it proves true or not true how do you work with this fuzzy data and arrive at a conclusion i i do believe that that's pretty tough stuff right yes and it's that's an that's an, a very smart question because it guides us right into the next level of fuzziness and that's why what we are doing is very hard there's the underlying signal fuzziness and biolo biological fuzziness, but then you enter on the other side, the labeling side, to talk in machine learning terms, you run into this clinical fuzziness. So I give you an example. Not only do we have to figure out which of these mutations are actually true and not true, um, but then you have, you run clinical trials. So we run one of the largest trials right now in that space, a 10,000 patient trial uh, across 15 different cancers. And the way you design these trials is, Uh, well, we have this great technology. We want to be able to tell you if it distinguishes between cancer and non-cancer effectively, right? And the way you do that is you create cohorts of patients and you say, give me uh, 50 early stage pancreatic cancer patients and draw blood and then take 50 non-diagnosed so-called healthy patients or patients with other conditions but not cancer um, and, and draw their blood. Right? And then you feed it to the machine and say, was the machine able in a blind way uh, to distinguish these two samples? And if you can, then that's good. But now comes the problem. Um, the healthy or non-diagnosed patients, um, let's assume you screen a thousand of them and 25 look like cancer. So in uh, clinical terms, you would say these are false positives, right? They're non-diagnosed. You screened a thousand and 20 came back positive. So your test is like has a 98% specificity because 20 are mislabeled. The question is, how do you even know you're mislabeling them? Like, how do you know they don't have cancer? Right? Because the truth again, like, okay, they're not diagnosed with cancer. That doesn't mean that they don't have cancer. In fact, it's very likely that one to two to 3% of people, depending on age group, have cancer, but are non-diagnosed. So you run these trials and you try to find the truth, but you don't even know the truth in the first place. If someone is diagnosed with cancer, then it's very likely they actually have cancer. It's not given that they have the cancer that the physician says, right? It could be metastatic pancreatic cancer, but then it turns out it's actually metastatic liver cancer that turns out in the pancreas, like who knows? And, and they misdiagnose them. For healthy patients, You don't know if they're healthy. So that's a big problem because we already find people who have cancer in our control cohort. Then we have to come back to the to our principal investigators and clinicians and say, well, we have these false positives. But guess what? We think there are not false positives. We think they have cancer. And then the clinician says, yeah, what the hell do we do now? Because we thought they're healthy. What cancer do they have? 
And then we say, well, right now we have a hard time telling you which cancer because this is in development. We just see they have cancer. I don't know. You have to find it out. And then they say, well, we don't know how because if I don't know where to look, you know, I, don't, I can't check the entire body for like a micro tumor. So I'm lost. And then you basically don't find the truth. You just have to say, well, maybe they have cancer, but these guys don't know how to figure it out. We have to wait a year or two or three or five to see if something happens and they can actually identify the cancer. So the tricky part is everything is much more complex um, by multiple magnitudes compared to a conventional startup and even compared to hard technology startups in other um, verticals because we have it on both sides, on the tech development side and on the truth side. For example, if you build rockets, yeah, it's complex. You have these sensors and they might have uncertainties, but you know pretty well if your rocket works or not. Because if it blows up, didn't work. If it goes to orbit, it worked. Like imagine you don't even know if the rocket works. Imagine you have to shoot the rocket, but you can't look at it and you can't get feedback. And you have to wait a year and see if the satellite actually sends back a signal. You can't see if the rocket blew up. That would make it more difficult. And that's basically medicine. You're developing rockets, same complexity, maybe more. Uh, then you shoot the rocket, but you don't know, you cannot look at the rocket and you don't see if it actually lifts off and you don't know if it gets to orbit. You can just check a year later if the satellite that was on the rocket actually sends a signal. And so that would make it pretty tricky. We may also want to add, uh, you're looking for mutations, which you, um, for the people who are already diagnosed, can diagnose as some type of cancer but on the other hand not all mutations are actually bad that is how the human race is actually developing so i do understand that is pretty tough right yes so there are two types of mutations there are uh, something that is called hereditary variants which means your dna looks different from mine so if i take any average of your cells they look different than the average of my cells because you're a different human being than I am. And you could call these mutations. The difference is these mutations are present in all of your body cells because it's your DNA. So these mutations are not necessarily bad. Some are bad, but some are very good, right? That's why you're talented and can build a great podcast probably because of some of your mutations. So that's not a bad thing. What we are looking for are somatic mutations and they are mostly bad. It's very unlikely that they are good. And somatic mutations do not occur in all your cells. They, all occur, they only occur in a very small subset of cells. So these are mutations that happen after you are born and after you have your normal DNA established in your body. So it means some of your cells start behaving very differently from all your other cells. And these are cancer-associated mutations. And so you also have hereditary mutations that make you more likely to develop a cancer in your lifetime, like the BRCA gene or BRCA mutation on the mutations on the BRCA gene to be more accurate. But this is a different thing. That means all your body cells have that mutation and having that mutation makes it more likely you will have cancer in your lifetime. What we are looking for are specific mutations that only occur in the actual tumor cell. And that is why we need this extreme high precision sequencing, because we have to find that single tumor cell in a background noise of millions of other cells in, your, in a blood sample or tens of thousands of other cells. I never heard of any somatic mutation that actually helped you. That would be weird. I 
do you understand that? And uh, so far, what we've talking about is, of course, interesting for people with a background in medicine. But I also do believe with background, uh, with people background in technology, as well as philosophy, because you search it for the truth. That said, um, you are in my podcast because you're right now actually not in the US where your company is headquartered, but you are in. I'm in Berlin visiting the Mustererkennungseinheit, which is our German GmbH, our German subsidiary, um, where we have quantitative biologists, uh, machine learning, um, and software engineering. And yeah, we have a research team here in Berlin uh, for multiple reasons. And I'm just visiting to do some things with them. Sounds good. Can we um, go a little bit into how it would actually look for patients. So what I understand is now I go there, I get a little pix and then I get, uh, then you take some blood and then you come back with the result. Is that everything that happens? Well, it's, that's the core component that happens, but it's a, it's a whole system of early detection. So what we developed is a blood test that guides physicians in the detection of early stage cancer or cancer in general. And so what happens is you order that on our website. Um, you get connected to a physician. It will launch in the US first, but Germany, Switzerland are on the map. Um, and the physician does a quick uh, intake, asks you for some basic stuff, orders the test um, for you, it needs to be physician ordered for regulatory reasons. Um, then a phlebotomist comes in to your office or you can come into the physician um, and we draw 10, two times 10 milliliter, two tubes of blood. You need like a critical mass of blood because you want to detect cancer, right, if it's there. And then we run it through our system, single molecule profiling of each DNA fragment across certain locations. Um, we generate complex patterns where we see what frequencies you have with these specific mutations and then match it against the historic data set um, of patients from our clinical trials to see what you match most. And then you get another session with a physician who comes back to you and, and shows you, goes through the results with you. Just like, are you all in range with normal, healthy patients? Is anything out of range? If it's out of range, what types of cancers look a little bit like your sample? Whatever the results are, it's not detecting cancer in a clinical sense because the only way to actually have a confirmatory diagnosis is through a biopsy. So this, all other methods are just precursors. So if there is something that looks suspicious, our physicians basically think about that with you, you know, go through your other risk factors and decide, okay, what is the best next step we have to take to confirm it's not cancer or that it is cancer. And so that is very important that we don't just give you a test and then tell you if you have cancer or not. It's much more sophisticated than that, right? So we basically say, well, here it's a little out of range. We would recommend now uh, given your other risk factors, um, to do some imaging, for example. We, we may say that a biopsy is actually a, a doctor takes tissue samples from you to confirm that within this tissue there is actually cancer. Somebody checks it under a microscope and stuff like that. Um, I do believe we have to have a lot of further readings down here in the show notes because there is like a lot of material we went through. Um, but that is something I now understand. Have you any 
idea of a timeline when you are actually going to launch in the United States and in Germany, Switzerland, Austria? Yes. So it's a very, uh, the space we are in is so complex that you don't have a lot of companies actually competing for this. And of course, not competing, it's peers. We are happy about anyone who makes progress. We are five years ahead, roughly, in my estimate of everyone else, because we actually are a little ahead in technology for our peers, but we also have a different commercialization strategy where we launch with a self-payer product. So you pay $2,000 and you can get the system, the test. Um, whereas our four to five key peers uh, try to get Medicare reimbursement first, which I think is a mistake, but at least for us, um, because that will postpone the timeline by seven to eight years. Um, they need enormous studies to get actually read Medicare reimbursement. And they're very likely to not have multi-cancer detection capability. So we detect up to 10 cancers, eight to 10 cancers. We have to see it launch. So we are launching this year, 2020, which is like a very important step. Um, start in the United States um, and Germany, Switzerland are, and Austria potentially are on our list first in line. Um, we still have to do some more work to figure out what the leanest path to launch is. But I think within 12 months after US launch and maybe within six months, we have to see that. That leads the timeline to approximately 2021. And um, of course, I would be curious uh, how uh, that kept uh, keeping that in mind how you guys are actually financed in crunchbase i've seen you raise 6.1 million so far are you currently looking for venture capital for rolling out all of that yes crunchbase is a little behind because we didn't close the note yet so we have uh, we raised 13 million in total um and we are raising another uh five million right now um i think i'm not like allowed to solicit any investments but it's just informationally that we uh, have the note open right now um and after that are going to do a series b um also this year um and we made pretty good progress in california to connect to the usual suspects and they of course find that highly interesting uh, because health and deep tech in health protection is something on the agenda of most top tier tech vcs right now um, so yes, I mean, we are venture funded, we have a hedge fund and a venture fund, um, backing us. Um, and in the next step, we want to get, uh, more top tier investors in to be prepared for IPO and everything that's to come down the road. I see, see, we are running now over 30 minutes, which is, uh, unusual, but not bad for our interview because I do believe it's, it's completely new area. And as you said, it's very much cutting edge. I was wondering, is there anything else you're looking for? I assume you always have, um, a use for somebody who studied genomics and also has like a PhD in computer science, right? Yes. So we are, of, of course, always looking for talent that is not afraid to tackle complex problems, um, especially in machine learning and especially machine learning and data scientists who had in the past exposure to biological problems that could be proteins, could be DNA, could be RNA. Everyone who understands this is a little tricky and had to, uh, you know, bumped up against these problems from a data science perspective. 
Um, so we are strong in Berlin. Um, we also like MIT as a recruitment ground for our US office. Um, but yeah, we are very, we are always looking for talent. Um, and other than that, of course, anyone who's a potential business partner, right on the on the distribution side, who works with concierge care, any anyone who works with premium medicine providers, um, or you know premium cancer screening solutions in Europe, would be very interesting because we are preparing uh, market entry. Sounds pretty good. Um, finally, just one question um, and everybody who'd like to learn more can go down here in the show notes. There is a link to your company website as well as to your own LinkedIn profile. I was wondering, uh, you've an economist turned cancer researcher using machine learning. Um, and if you would have the choice for just one week to be the CEO of any company in the world, what would it be and why? I mean, I have to be honest, I would actually choose to be the CEO of Bontine. And I know it sounds, it sounds maybe silly, but I have no better use of my time right now. I think what we are doing every week becomes more exciting. It's because it is not just genomics, AI, and cancer, which is cool enough. It is literally the, you know, spearheading the total transformation of the healthcare sector and of primary care and how we actually do innovation in medicine. And that spans all key technologies that spans or that includes massive economics and business model innovation, which is equally important. It's as important as our tech is our business model innovation and how we deal with regulatory hurdles, how we deal with the business model. I think that is totally missing in biotech and healthcare entrepreneurs who actually have this economics perspective, because in the end, it's all about figuring out how do we bring the most cutting edge medical innovation to patients in a way that is economically feasible and profitable and builds an engine, a value creation engine that is based off innovation and patient protection and builds a massive big company. And no one has cracked that and Quanchin is cracking it now. So I think there's literally nothing more exciting for me. Well, basically everything I have to say about it. Don't worry, everything's fine. Uh, uh, I may excuse you because every time you've been smiling, I've been laughing here very hard uh, quite frequently. And the only option you had is smiling and keep talking. I'm really sorry about that. Um, I just want to say it was such a pleasure having you here. It was just great having you as guest. Best of luck and everybody who'd like to learn more or find some, I actually say only some of all the medical bio and genetic terms we've been using here. Go down here in the show notes. As far as I can find them, I'll link them on Wikipedia. Thank you very much. It was just a pleasure having you here. Yeah, thanks a lot. And of course, on quantine.com, we also try to educate everyone on all the terms. And so you can take a look there too. And thanks a lot, a lot for, for having me. I think what you're doing is amazing. I think Germany needs, uh, you know, people and media uh, innovators like you. And I think it's super exciting. So thanks a lot for doing the podcast. You're very welcome. Admittedly, more than 80% of my traffic is from outside of Germany. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> 
Thanks a lot. That's all, folks. Find more news, streams, events, and interviews at www.startuprad.io. Remember, sharing is caring.